Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 108 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about the downfall of David. Let's dive in. One of the things I love about scripture is the fact that the Bible doesn't hide or mask the truth about the people contained therein. For example, you you look at the story of Noah, and of course we think this great epic story of Noah and the ark. But we often forget that the Bible records that after he came out of the ark, he got drunk. Then you have a man called Abraham who lied several times about his wife or his kind of his stepsister named Sarah. You have their grandson named Jacob who lied to his father Isaac and to his brother Esau. Moses was a murderer and lost his temper several times. Then you have like the New Testament characters like Thomas who had disbelief or Peter who lost courage and denied Christ. That when you walk through scripture, it's interesting that you don't just get this glossy finish of the characters as if they were more than human or somehow they were, you know, super spiritual, but they actually were just people like you and I were, and they had struggles like you and I have. And there are times when there are things recorded in scripture that are just they're just not good. Why? Well, because they were real. And the Bible obviously is recording what is actually taking place, not putting this glossy finish over some of our heroes of the faith. Well, I want to spend today and talk about King David in the Old Testament. Last week, I was kind of hinting at some of the, the issues and the problems of David's life and the fact that here is David. And according to 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, It said that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that God commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. And in the last episode, I was just, I was talking about this idea that what does it, what does it look like for here's David who is constantly seen from God's perspective, who's constantly saying, God, what do you want to do in this situation? But there was this one time, just one little time where David reverts back into his own thought process. He comes and says, okay, I want to I see this from my own perspective and my own lens or my own grid, and I'm going to act accordingly, and I'm going to determine what is right 
in my own eyes. And you realize that in this, this issue of Uriah the Hittite, which we're about to deal with, that this, was, this caused a major, major downfall of his life. In fact, I love what W.G. Blakey wrote about David's life in this scenario in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Blakey writes this, quote, How ardently would most, if not all, readers of David's life have wished that the first verse of 2 Samuel 11 had been, And David died and was gathered unto his fathers, and his son reigned in his stead. Oh, the golden era of his life had passed away. His son had begun to go down, and what remains of his life is checkered with records of crime and chastisement, of sin and of sorrow. What we now encounter is not a spot, but an eclipse. It is not a mere pimple that slightly disfigures a calmly face, but a tumor that distorts the countenance and drains the whole body of its vigor, unquote. I love that quote because I think Blakey is actually describing what we all long for is that up until the point of 2 Samuel chapter 11, David's life really is a picture of perfection. Now, we recognize that David wasn't perfect, that, you know, he's human. Obviously, he he's birthed into sin and, and there's a lot of corruption and that kind of stuff. But it's interesting that the records of scripture up until 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is almost painted like he's perfect, that there is no blemishes or problems, that he is a righteous man of God who is constantly doing whatever God desires. For example, even in 2 Samuel chapter 8, twice in verse 6 and verse 14, it says that the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And that word preserved in the Hebrew is Yasha, which is this idea of to preserve, to deliver, or to make victorious. So there's this idea that whatever David was doing, wherever David went, God was preserving his way. He was preserving. He was delivering. He was making David victorious. And there seems like there's a reason why all of the early years of David is this glossy finish up until 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I personally believe that the reason was is because it's highlighting or it's almost putting a greater highlighter pen, if you will, on this particular story. And it's saying, yeah, David may have had issues in the past, but we're not going to look at those because this is the monumental. This is the this is the big shift. This is this is the turning point in David's life and his kingdom. So up until 2 Samuel chapter 11, David had complete trust, faith, and dependence upon God. Here he was. He was this anointed king as this young child in hostile territory because Saul was already king. And yet he, he obeyed and he came under authority and he was constantly serving not only Saul, but his people. And then here's God in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and, and God brings uh, all of Israel together and makes David king over all of Israel. And again, there's this emphasis of, hey, David is doing what is right in the eyes of God. But as it comes thundering in to chapter 11, he obviously is turning within himself and doing something from his own perspective. Now, as I mentioned last week, you recognize we we can't just say, well, it's just one little sin. It was just one little, it's not that big of a deal. Nobody even knows about it because you begin to realize that sin becomes very, very significant. In fact, it's not just, whoops, I did one little thing. Well, it's not a big deal. It's just one time. But you realize that in David's life, it was just one little thing. It was just one sin, one, one time. David reverted back into his own perspective, his own thought process, his own fleshly desires. 
and it literally caused a corruption, a turning point of his life and of the kingdom. Well, as we come into 2 Samuel chapter 11, most scholars presume that David is likely now in his 50s. And it's interesting that there's some debate whether or not David desired to stay in uh, in Jerusalem or whether it was his commanders. It's interesting that as you move into a couple chapters from now, chapter 21, that David's commanders come to David and it says in verse 17 that the men of David swore to him saying, you shall not go out no more with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. In other words, David, here you are, you're God's anointed. You are the king. Let us go out to battle. You're getting older. Let us go out to battle. We'll fight the battles. You need to stay at home and be king. Now, there are some scholars who suggest that maybe this is going on even here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, that because David is likely in his 50s at this point, that maybe the commanders are saying, well, maybe don't go out this time. Maybe just stay at home. Or maybe it's just David's desire saying, well, (laughs) I've done this battle thing for years. I'm staying at home. Regardless, what we do know is that David stayed at home when he should have gone out to battle. In fact, if you have your Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 says this, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And immediately there's a contrast being set up that here is the time when kings go off to battle, and what does David do? Well, he remains at Jerusalem. And already the author is putting this tension saying, David is not where he is supposed to be. He is supposed to be with Joab and the the Israelite army besieging Ammon and, and Rabbah. Now, it's important to point out that the reason that the springtime was so significant for battle, of course, spring has been called a time of of war and a time of love, which we do see in this story itself. But there's some archaeologist scholars who found some Assyrian annuals, like some documents from the Assyrians. And the Assyrians mentioned that military campaigns considered spring the best time of war. And the reasoning was is that the rainy season in the Middle East ended around the spring equinox, which is actually the time right now that we're living in, which because the the rainy season ends, it gives actually better roads for the troops and better grass for the animals to eat. In other words, it literally sets up a great season for battle. And of course, when it's all kind of blustery and rainy and that kind of stuff, you know, it's not, it's not very good to go fight. So a lot of times what would happen is that these two groups would be fighting and it starts getting to be the rainy season and they'd say, hey, all right, let's stop and uh, we'll meet you back here at springtime. So, hey, we hate you. You hate us. All right, we'll enjoy your Christmas season. And, you know, hey, have have a great new year and, you know, enjoy that turkey. But, hey, we're, we're going to come back here a few months from now and we're going to fight and we're going to kill each other, <laughs> which is just a crazy thought. But they would divide and they would separate and they would go do their own thing and they would go back home. And then at the springtime, they would come back together and they would begin to fight. Now, at this time, at this springtime, this is the one year anniversary of the time when the Ammonite kings marched against Israel. Now, if you turn back a chapter to chapter 10, verse 6 through 19, here is this whole Ammonite battle with the Israelites. So presumably, it gets to be rainy season. They've been in this battle. They stop. They go their own ways. And now it's springtime. So what are we going to do? Well, we got to finish that battle. So we're coming back together again, and we're going to battle. So rather than David going off to this battle, he stays in Jerusalem, but sends his troops 
under the command of Joab, uh, his commander. Now, all throughout the story, there is tons of contrast and irony. And I, I just want to look at a few couple of quick of these contrasts. But it's interesting that David sends his men to go destroy and to besiege this enemy nation, but he remains. In fact, that word remain in Hebrew has this idea of to dwell, to remain, to sit, to abide, to stay, to have one's abode. In other words, it's this idea of to relax, to kick your feet up, to have security and safety. And so you get this contrast where here's David sending his men into this battle, which is just, it's hard. They're, they're living in tents and, you know, they're sleeping on the ground. And yet here is David. He's kicking his feet up. He's in a lazy boy recliner. He has the king's feast. He has a glass of, you know, sweet southern iced tea with him all the time. Well, I mean, this is the life. And yet his men are living in constant and just continual, just drab and misery because they're on a battlefield. Another contrast is here is Joab and his men surrounding Rabbah to starve them out. So here they are. Uh, they're, you know, they're not eating very well. You know, hey, here they are living in the tents. Here they are. You know, their bathroom situation is not the very best. You know, indoor plumbing is not out there on the battlefield, obviously, right? But what is David doing? Well, David sits in luxury, partaking of the very best. And it's interesting that later on in the story, when Uriah comes, when David summons Uriah in the hopes that, you know, Uriah would sleep with his wife, it's interesting that David tries to entice Uriah with this luxury, saying, hey, why don't you participate with me in this luxury? And in a noble sense, Uriah says, no, that my men are out on this battlefield and, and hey, they're sleeping on the ground and they don't have much to eat and I'm going to live like they're living and I'm not going to participate in your luxury. And maybe one other contrast to point out is the fact that here's David's men. They go out to protect the nation, right, against this enemy enemy group. And yet what does David do? David is literally destroying the nation from the inside as he remains in Jerusalem. And again, a lot of these contrasts, you just begin to see the, the seeds of them in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In fact, if you look at verse 1, there's four key verbs found in verse 1. This idea of sent destroyed, besieged, and then remained. Well, you know the story. David's men go out to fight the battle, and David here, here he is remaining in Jerusalem. And one night, he's up on his rooftop. And if you if you ever go to Israel, it's interesting. You go to the city of David, and the city of David, the way it's built is kind of built on the hillside of Jerusalem, and David's palace is built on the top of the hill. And of course, the temple will later be built further up on the hill, but kind of where the city of David part is, David's palace is at the top. And yet it's a magnificent view of the of the valley. It's a magnificent view going down. You can see all the houses that would have been in the city of David. So as you get into this story and it says in verse two, that one evening when David arose from his bed and was walking on the roof of the king's house, from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Well, obviously that makes a lot of sense because when you're at the top of the hill, all you have is to look down. And of course, if, you know, if, if there's this bathtub in the window right? And here's this woman bathing. You'd have a great view of it. But it's interesting. Here's this woman and she's obviously beautiful. And here's David on the top of his roof and he's, he's just walking out on the rooftop. Well, is there anything wrong with that? No, not necessarily. Now he's not where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be on the battlefield, but is it wrong for David to go up on the roof? Well, no, because that's a very customary thing to do. You know, in the cool of the evening, the, the, the roofs were flat. You go up on top of the roof 
so that you could have the cool breeze and it would just kind of cool you down. In fact, a lot of families sleep on their roofs, you know, during the summer months because it's the coolest part of the building. So here's David walking around on the roof, which that's not the issue. The issue is he's just not where he's supposed to be. But as he's walking around, he gets to the edge of the roof and he looks down. He notices here's this woman bathing. And of course, he's enticed. And of course, lust begins to fill his mind, obviously, because it says in verse three, so David sent someone to inquire about the woman. And he was asked, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So you got to grab a hold of this. David sees this beautiful woman and says, hey, who is that? And someone goes and investigates and comes back and says, hey, that's Bathsheba, which makes sense because she was taking a bath. But hey, that's Bathsheba. And that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, David could not have been like, oh, never heard of her. Oh, I, hey, I wonder who she is. He knew exactly who she was. In fact, most likely, she had been over to the palace several times for meals. And you know why? Is because Uriah the Hittite was one of the top generals in David's army. In fact, he was one of David's best friends. When you look at the line or, or the list of David's mighty men, both in 2 Samuel and in Chronicles, there's this list of 30 of the mighty men. These were the valiant warriors of David. These, these were the best friends. These were the guys who hung out with David. Hey, these are the guys who stuck with him during the hard times when Saul was trying to kill David. I mean, these were the guys who had these valiant feats. I mean, they're just, they, are, they, are, they truly are some incredible men. Some of my favorite people in the Old Testament is found in that list of David's mighty men. And Uriah the Hittite was one of them. So Uriah the Hittite, it wasn't like, well, who is he? David would have said, oh, Uriah the Hittite? Yeah, I just had dinner with him the other night before they went off to battle. Yeah, Uriah the Hittite? Yeah, you know, we, you know, we, we play, you know, we play card games all the time. Yeah, you know, we're, hey, we're, we're, we're good friends. We're buddies. So think about this. When David is told that Bathsheba is Uriah the Hittite's wife, it couldn't have been like, oh, I wonder who she is. Well, I guess I'll sleep with her. Maybe it's not a big deal. He knew exactly who she was. Now, with that kind of as a layer, it's interesting to look at this word sent. Again, it says in verse three, so David sent someone to inquire about the woman. Verse four, so David sent messengers and took her. That idea of send uh, or sent, it's used 23 times between chapters 10 and chapters 12. I mean, this is, if you want about if you want to talk about repetition, there is a ton of sending going on between chapters 10 and chapters 12. That word there is sent, it means to take, to seize, to reach out and grab, to capture, to take up, to hold on to, or to carry off. In fact, every time that word is used in association with David, it is always used to exert power, control, show authority, that kind of idea. So think about what's happening here. David sees this woman and he goes and says, hey, I, hey, find out who she is. And he sends, he literally grabs and throws this guy and says, hey, I want, I want to find out who she is. And in the moment he finds out who she is, he is so consumed with lust and perversion that it says that he went and sent someone to grab and drag her off so that he could have her. Now, that is, that is such a twistedness of, of, of a kingly power, control, and authority. In other words, David has kingly power and control. And yes, in a sense, he can do whatever he wants to do because he's king. However, this is such a twistedness or a perversion of that 
that he's taken the power that God has given him and he's saying, I, I want to satisfy my own selfishness. I want to do what I want to do. So he goes out and he grabs this woman and drags her off so that he can sleep with her. Now, it's interesting that as you get into verse 27, toward the end of this chapter, that here Uriah is dead at this point, but it says that when Bathsheba's mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But this thing was displeasing to God. And that's the last time in scripture that the word sent is used in relationship with David. In other words, after the point where here's Uriah who's died and he goes and he grabs Bathsheba and drags her off again, this time to become his wife, he will never send again, at least recorded in scripture. But it is fascinating to me that in chapter 12, verse 1, the very first verse in chapter 12, after this whole crazy scene, it says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And it's like he grabbed Nathan, which must have been a stellar character in scripture. I really like Nathan. Obviously, I'm biased. (laughs) But here's the Lord. He grabs Nathan and says, I'm sending you to David. And hey, you don't get a choice in this. You've got to go and you've got to confront this. But that word sent is not used of David anymore. Now, again, you know the story, but David goes, sends for Bathsheba, brings her in. He sleeps with her. And not long after this, Bathsheba sends a report to David saying, just want to let you know, I'm pregnant. Now, David, obviously concerned and filled with all this just sin and grotesqueness at this point, calls for Uriah. So he sends this letter and Uriah comes over and he says, hey, Uriah, uh, what's been going on in the battlefield? Give me the report of what's happening. And of course, Uriah kind of gives him the update. And David says, great, wonderful. Hey, why don't you, hey, before you go off to the battle, you know, tomorrow, hey, why don't you just go home and kick your feet up, take a long bath and, you know, soothe your aching muscles and, hey, get some food and, hey, spend some time with your wife. Obviously, as a cover-up for David's own sin, hoping that Uriah would sleep with his wife. And that way, you know, when Uriah came home from the battlefield and Bathsheba goes, hey, I'm pregnant, you know, he'll go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that was that one time that I visited when David was asking about it. But Uriah was a noble, righteous man. And instead of going home to his wife, which was just next door to the palace, you realize, Uriah spent time at the gates of the palace. The next morning, David's told that Uriah did not go home that night. And so David brings in Uriah and he's like, hey, why didn't, why didn't you go home? And of course, Uriah, being a noble man, says, well, why would I go home? Why would I enjoy the luxuries of, of spending time with my wife when all the other military guys are out on the out on the dust and out on the roads and you know living on the ground and they they don't get to see their wives and they don't get nice food. Now as the story goes on, David says, "Hey, why don't you stay longer?" And gets Uriah drunk, and even drunk. Get this: even when Uriah was drunk, he was more righteous than David being sober. That here is Uriah, and he's he's drunk, but he still spends the night at the palace gates. He doesn't go home to his wife even when he's inebriated by the, by the alcohol. And so here's David who is, who is sober. He's trying to cover up his mistake, his sin, right? And here's Uriah drunk. And yet Uriah drunk is more pious or more righteous or more holy or more noble than David when he's sober, which is just an interesting contrast that in and of itself. But as you even begin to look at these lives of David and Uriah, What's interesting is that even in this whole story, there's this great contrast between these two characters, David 
and Uriah. For example, here's Uriah fighting for the king and the kingdom. But David is fighting against the nation from the inside, as we mentioned before. Here's Uriah, and he places his wife's life and honor in the protection of King David. But what does David do? He takes Uriah's wife for himself and doesn't protect, but actually harms Bathsheba. Here's Uriah, who's loyal to the king and to God. But David in the story is only loyal to himself. Here's Uriah, the servant, where David is the sovereign or the king. Uriah submits, he responds, he surrenders. But here is David, and he uses all this sending language. Again, it's all about control, power, and authority. Uriah, he is honest, where David is being hypocritical. Uriah is a man of character, where David is a man of control. He's manipulating this whole thing. Isn't that just a sad contrast between the two characters? So here's David, who's the, who's called to protect the kingdom. And what is he doing? He's destroying the kingdom by his own selfishness. There's a quote by an unknown source, but it says a man or a convert of foreign ancestry, because you know Uriah is a Hittite. So he's not even he's not even an Israelite. He's a foreigner who has identified himself with the Israelites and has come under the authority of King David, and he's serving King David. But the quote says this, a man or a convert of foreign ancestry is more righteous than the Israelite king who was a man after God's own heart. And because Uriah refused to be unrighteous, because Uriah refused to sleep with his wife and kind of cover up the sin of David, David writes this piece of scroll and says, hey, give give this to Joab when you see him. And Uriah takes his own death wish, or his, own, his own warrant, if you will, and he hands it to Joab. And, the, and the, what David wrote is, hey, put Uriah at the front of the battle where, where the fierce, you know, the heat is happening and then kind of pull back from him in hopes that Uriah would be killed in the midst of the battle. So could you imagine, here's Uriah, he's walking back to the battlefield. He hands Joab his own death certificate. And Joab reads this thing and he goes, all right, well, whatever's going on, okay. It's the king's word. Hey, Uriah, why don't you go fight up front? You, hey, you've had a few relaxing days with the king. Go fight up front. Now, this would not be abnormal. Why? Because Uriah is one of David's 30 mighty men. Of course, they're used to fighting at the front of the battle. Of course, they're used to these valiant feats. So Uriah is put at the front of the battle and everyone kind of pulls back and Uriah is killed. Now, Joab sends this messenger back to David and says, hey, give a report on how the battle's going. Now, you're going to have to tell him it's not going so well. Hey, we're trying. We're doing our best. And if the king gets angry, at least tell him that Uriah the Hittite has been killed. So the messenger shows up to David and says, oh, dear David, the battle's not going so hot. But, hey, Uriah the Hittite has been killed. Now, listen to the reply of David. This is in chapter 11, verse 25. So David replied to the messenger, thus you shall report to Joab. Do not allow this thing to dismay you for the sword devours one as well as another. Sustain your attack against the city and bring it to ruin. Encourage him with this reply. Isn't it interesting at the end of first Samuel when Saul dies and at the very beginning of second Samuel, David is told that Saul and his son Jonathan and uh, and a couple, of, a couple of the other sons have been killed, that David weeps, he mourns. In fact, he writes this song of lament and he like cries out and he, he has this time of memorial service. And, and these were his enemies. 
I mean, Jonathan was his best friend. I understand that. But Saul was, was his enemy. Saul's been trying to kill him. And yet as the Lord's anointed, David looked at that whole thing and said, hey, hey, let's, let's mourn for Saul and for Jonathan and, and the, the other sons. But you look at this scene and what a sad contrast this is. David has been so sucked into his sin. His, his heart has been so hardened that when David learns that his best friend, one of his mighty men, has been killed in the line of battle, how does David reply? Eh, it's not that big of a deal. In fact, hey, go back and tell Joab, hey, everyone dies eventually. Hey, the sword devours one as well as another. So, hey, don't be disheartened. Just keep fighting the battle. Do you realize how much sin affects our lives? It literally closes us down. It hardens our heart. And here is a point where here is David who not only committed adultery, but now he has lied and now he has murdered. And now he is, I mean, you start walking through the Ten Commandments. It's interesting. It's like David breaks them all. I mean, it's just like one after another, after another, after another, after another. That here is David who is who's being closed down. He's being consumed by sin. Here he is. His heart has been, his heart has been hardened by the sin. And his best friend and one of his mighty valiant warriors has just been slain by his hand. Because David issued this whole thing. And David just doesn't care. In fact, as soon as Bathsheba hears that Uriah has died and has gone through the season of mourning, David with just like this insensitive, just placid whateverness, just grabs Bathsheba and brings her over and makes her his wife. And it says at the very end of chapter 11, at the conclusion of this whole scene, it says, but the thing that David had done was displeasing to the Lord. And that word, therefore, displeasing means to tremble or to quiver. In other words, it's often translated to be displeased or to grieve or to be sad or ill. But it's this idea that what, what was happening was, was so repulsive to God that it's like he's trembling and quivering and just going, oh, I'm so sick to death about this, that, man, I, I feel horrible, that that you the way you are living, the, the junk that's in your life, this is so putrid to me. What a sad commentary on the life of David. Here's a man that God chose because he was a man after his own heart. And here's a man who just, just this one time, just one time turned within himself, said, hey, what do I want to do? And out of his own flesh and out of his own sin, made a decision, and it literally caused a turning point, a collision, a corruption of the, his life and of the kingdom. And what he did was displeasing to the Lord. Now, next week, I want to look at the repentance of David and, and look at chapter 12 as well as Psalm 51. But let me ask you, what areas of your life have you grown hard in your heart toward God? What, what areas of your life have you been justifying sin? See, what, what areas or what things or what activities or what habits or what, what, is it, what is it in your life that you've just said, well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, it's just this one time. It's just... Do you recognize it's it's just the one time that causes destruction? 
And sin is so repulsive to God. It just, it breaks his heart. It makes him tremble and quiver that it just makes him sick on the inside. Why? Because that's not what you were created for, that you were created for life and for godliness and righteousness, that you were made for relationship with him. And what have we done? We, we have spat in his face and shake our fists in his, in his face and just said, hey, I want to do my own thing my own way. And isn't it a tremendous reality that while we were yet sinners, while we were shaking our fists in rebellion toward God, Christ died for us and literally broke the chains of darkness and sin in our life that we do not have to live under the tyranny and the thumb of sin any longer, that we can walk in freedom and victory and triumph. I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but what I'm saying is, hey, you don't have to be shackled by and, and, and enslaved by sin any longer, that we can have relationship and intimacy with Jesus himself. But may I exhort you, if you see areas of your life, hey, if there's been sin that has been unrepented of, hey, if there's areas of darkness, hey, if your heart has grown cold and hard, can I just, oh, can I plead with you? Will you repent? Hey, would you get on your face before Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't, I can't live this way any longer. I can't have this junk remaining in my life anymore. It's interesting that Charles Spurgeon makes a statement. God does not let his children sin successfully. <laughs> Isn't that a great quote? God does not let his children sin successfully. Do you, do you realize that what begins to happen with when the Lord calls Nathan to confront David, that that he's not going to let David get away with this. But think about this, the hardness of David's heart, the fact that he's been closed down. We know for sure for nine, at least nine months, David has been completely cut off from God, that he has like shunned and pushed God away saying, I'm not interested in you. Hey, I'm, I want to live and grovel in my sin. And some scholars say maybe even up to two years. Think about this that David remains in his sin, that David remains in his junk. He remains in the hardness of his heart. You, you recognize that you can't write Psalms in the middle of that kind of, and when you're living in that kind of sin and, and being shut down and pushing God away. Hey, you, you, hey, when you're living in that kind of darkness, that you're not living in intimacy and relationship with God. And for at least, we know for sure nine months, because Nathan confronts David after the baby's born. But at least nine months, maybe, and again, some scholars suggest even up to two years, David is just, he is shut down. He is, he's turned within himself. He's living in just his own thought process and his own sin. His heart has been hardened. You realize that he had wasted up to two years of his life from having this great intimacy with Jesus if he just would have repented on the front end. So please do not wait. Don't say, well, I'll deal with this area of my life later. Come before the Lord and repent. His blood is sufficient. And if you want some just encouragement, read the book of 1 John. Because 1 John is just this overwhelming declaration that, hey, we have an advocate in the midst of our junk. And yet he has made an avenue so that you don't have to keep living in the sin. You don't have to keep living under the thumb and the pressure of that junk. Hey, you don't have to continue you know, being chained to darkness and and the junk of temptation and sin, that you can walk in freedom and life and hope and victory in Christ Jesus. Again, next week we're going to talk about the the turning, the repentance, and, and, and David's heart. 
just the outpouring of his heart in Psalm 51. But can I encourage you between now and then, would you get on your face and let the Holy Spirit go through every aspect of your life and expose any area of darkness, any excuses, any pollution, any hardness of heart. And would you bring that before the Lord and repent? And would you go after Jesus afresh? Oh, I'm longing that for you. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, including an outline and in the notes that I went through walking through this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 108 for episode 108. And again, let me just remind you, Jesus passionately loves you. And you cannot do anything so great that he is unwilling to forgive you because he is always willing to forgive if you will repent. So would you go after him? Would, would you just oh embrace him afresh? And would you continue to build your life completely centered upon him? Oh, I'm longing that for you. But well, we'll see you next time.